This is the Tongue Big Big Tales podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Evans, and I write about a small town called Columbus in Northeast Mississippi. In today's episode, we're going to talk about Burns Bottom and Frog Bottom at the bottom of Factory Hill. Burns Bottom and Frog Bottom are one of the oldest historic neighborhoods in Columbus. Burns Bottom is what we'll call it in today's episode, is at the bottom of Factory Hill in an area of land that runs between First Street North and 2nd Avenue North and between 4th Avenue and 4th Street North. The area was designated on the National Register of Historic Places is no longer a neighborhood. Once rich with homes and a vibrant Black community, that lived here. Now it is the site of the farmer's market and a large soccer complex and park. The streets that once held cottages, dog trots, shotgun shacks, and antebellum homes are now bulldozed, weed and debris covered dumping grounds allegedly awaiting a developer to build condominiums and homes that start at $250,000. In other words, increasing the tax base of downtown Columbus after dismantling a poor working class predominantly Black community in the name of urban revitalization, gentrification, and mansionization. The once historic community was completely displaced and erased with no possibility of remaining on their old home neighborhood once the new structures are built, if and when they're built. Elderly African-American homeowners faced enormous pressure to sell, move, and abandon their homes in in Burns Bottom. Some properties were taken by right of eminent domain. Where did the people go? Did those who owned their homes make enough on the deal that they could afford to buy a new home? Or were they forced into rentals or substandard antiquated public housing? Why was no part of the gentrification process providing a percentage of the build-out for fixed-income seniors or for those less privileged? Why were the planners of the space told if the proposed area was mixed use, they would never get approval for the project, much less funding from the state? To understand more closely why the loss of Burns Bottoms historic landmark community is a blow to the town's African-American community itself, one must first explore its history. In 1822, records indicate a tanning yard was operated in Burns Bottom by Bond and Tinsley. In the 1830s, Mr. Good had a tan yard there at the present-day 3rd Street and 2nd Avenue North. It is reflected on the 1849 Keeler map. After the Civil War, Factory Hill and Burns Bottom began to experience significant growth and, and a business boom. Cotton-related industries began to, per, to populate the area. Union Cotton and Lumber Mill Tom Bigby Cotton Mill and other associated support industries like warehouses and storage facilities and other modern convenience needs grew. And so the city gas works, an ice company, uh, repair shops, and a grist mill sprung up in the area as well. The city created the hitching lot or the hitch lot, now the site of the farmer's market to minimize wagon traffic on Main Street. The homes that used to populate the area on and around the soccer fields and play spaces of Burns Bottom 
ranged from shotgun-style one-story shake roof homes built in the early 1890s and early 1900s, like the homes that used to sit at 122nd Avenue North and 311 4th Avenue North. Two, some one-story multi-gabled homes popular in the 1895 to 1900 era, such as were at once stood at 321 3rd Avenue North. Former 1950s structures of, of that area uh, included the, the Charity Missionary Baptist Church, which is still standing for now. However, the rest of the homes on Fifth Avenue North and beyond are all gone. Ten homes, all built in 1900 to 1905 and one in 1930. Of those homes on that road in front of Charity Missionary Baptist Church, not a trace remains of the homes or the people who live there. The same is true for the antebellum homes on 3rd Street, destroyed and mowed down by progressives and at least two members of the Columbus Visitors Bureau, an organization at that time that hosted our tour of historic antebellum homes. One of those two people was the treasurer of the CVB, Mark Castleberry, and one was the director, Nancy Carpenter. Carpenter also sat and still sits on the Mississippi Department of Archives and Histories, the board that oversees the designation of landmarks the protected status of places in the state. One of the larger homes in Burns Bottom was once the uh, Burdine and Austin Law Office, an old and storied law office. Even older was the office building. Was even older was oh boy. Let's try that again. <laughs> an old and storied law office. That office was located in a cinder block and wood frame building at 224 3rd Street North, right across the street from the northeast corner of the hitch lot. It had a two-tiered full-width veranda and was built about 1900. In Burns Bottom, it is best, it is considered, according to the National Register of Historic Places, one of the best remaining and most complete examples of a turn-of-the-century village in this area. Perhaps the most significant structure destroyed was the Burns House, a Greek revival two-story, full-width, undercut gallery built before the 1850s. It had a transom and side-lighted entrance and a second-floor balcony with a side-lighted doorway. The Burns home was specifically named as a contributing structure to the area's historic significance and its inclusion on the National Historic Register. The city did not elect to include the house or the Burns Bottom area as part of its historic districts, nor did it elect to recognize the Burns home as a historic structure. Sam Coy, a former noted local historian and expert on antebellum architecture, believe the home was built in 1835 for Pascal Wade. The house was lived in by the mayor of Columbus at one point, whose name was Isaac Knapp. He lived there in the 1840s. During Reconstruction era, a Yankee carpetbagger named B.B. Eggleston lived there while serving as the revenuer. Eggleston was responsible for the second bridge built across the Tom Bigby River in the late 1870s. Then he moved from Columbus and the house, and the next tenants gave it its name, Burns House. 
Burns was a local businessman who owned a butcher shop on 5th Street. He raised his family in the home and continued to live there many years. The home began to fall into disrepair in the 1930s during the Great Depression. The home finally became the property of the city when they bought it from the Cannon family, the last owners of the property. As part of the redevelopment plan, it was purchased for $28,000. According to Castleberry at the time, he, as the developer, was not opposed to someone restoring the house. It just wasn't going to be him. The Columbus Redevelopment Authority with Columbus City Council directed by Mayor Robert Smith, was charged with eliminating blight and enhancing the neighborhood with higher, read more expensive, quality homes to increase the tax base. At the root of the demolition and redevelopment of the area was the belief that removing the derelict and mostly rundown homes and churches would create badly needed building sites within the city. There is very little available property in the city for building new construction, and the potential was there to create a more expensive tax zone in the city to help infuse the city coffers. The planned townhomes for this community would start at $240,000, a price too high for most families in this community. When asked if there would be any more modest homes, the answer was a resounding no. It the CRA stated they would never get funding or city approval for such a project of mixed-use homes. So what happened to the people whose homes were sacrificed for this gentrification project? As mentioned before, they were rehomed. They were allegedly given better places to live of equal or better value. Where is that exactly? Well, many were moved into government housing, a.k.a. the project's. Most government housing in Columbus is from the last urbanization slash gentrification rehoming and were built in the 1960s and early 1970s. 68 privately owned lots were either bought at a vastly underrated price in Burns Bottom or taken by right of eminent domain. 28 vacant lots and 40 residencies. In March of 2015, CRA Board President John Acker stated the five-block project would start in approximately late 2016 or early 2017. It is now 2023, and the land sits untouched. The houses were burned and plowed under. The lots littered with remnants of people's homes and memories. Now the land is littered with broken bricks, old bits of charred roofing tile, and crushed cinder blocks. The kudzu and morning glory is taking over the detritus of the former homes. The land is unmowed because the, de the debris breaks the blades of mowing decks of the tractors needed to knock down the weeds. So why did a complete historic neighborhood get leveled despite being on the National Register of Historic Places? Why were none of the structures from the 1830s or, or the 1880s and 90s saved? Could they have been living history sites or even historical office space in the park? Could they have been moved or, and preserved, especially the Burns home? Well, several reasons. It was stated that the property was all slated for destruction with the rest of the buildings. The city had never designated Burns Bottom and the Burns House among them as part of the historic district. 
nor did the city recognize the Burns House as a historic structure. Not ever. The city planned to ignore all the laws related to historic property and public ownership and just demolish the buildings. Anyways, Ken Papool, a preservation officer with Mississippi Department of, of Archives and History, had to follow certain rules, said that the city had to follow certain rules before they could tear down the Burns House. The Burns House had to be considered for Mississippi landmark designation first, and that required a site survey. Developer Castleberry told the dispatch, the local paper, he was open to someone restoring the house and moving it. Don't forget that piece of, of his early history with this project prior to his leaving the project. In April of 2018, Burns House's destruction was put on hold so Mississippi Landmark Survey Study could be conducted. A local resident and noted uh, local history buff of the, some of the elder homes in this town at one point offered to buy the home and restore it. City Attorney Jeff Turnage was concerned that the res restoration would start in place and then run out of funding and then become yet a, a blighted building in the midst of the fancy new buildings once again. Oh, those shimmering, blighted turds floating in those their soon-to-be silver punch bowl of the city of Columbus. The landmark status process began and dragged in March, dragged on into March of 2019. An ad was run in the dispatch, starting a 30-day public comment period. Then, on April 11th, the MDH board took the feedback from the public into consideration on granting landmark status. Nancy Carpenter of the CVB sat on that board. The surveyors deemed the house worth preserving. Public, public comment was pro-preservation. The MDAH board, with Carpenter present, voted. The home was not made a landmark and was destroyed in 30 days or so. Why did Carpenter not fight for landmark status? Why were Carpenter and Castleberry both involved with the Columbus Redevelopment Authority? Did their working relationship at the CVB influence her vote to destroy the house with the MDAH? Did she recuse herself at the MDAH vote? Why is there no public record of her vote? Why would a house on the National Historic Register and an 1830s house, the MDAH's own surveyor said was worthy of landmark status, denied protection. Did Carpenter bother to try and save it? Why or why not? I find it interesting that yet again, Nancy Luke Carpenter and Mark Castleberry, both board members of the CVB, an organization closely tied to historic preservation in Columbus, are not found on record truly advocating for protection of this home much less lamenting its loss or the loss of 30 other historic properties in Burns Bottom. Why? Castleberry's position is obvious. As a developer, his money comes from a new completed project. But what was in it for Carpenter? Was there potential financial gain for voting? How Castleberry needed the vote to go? We may perhaps never know because she's never forthcoming or transparent. She's always self-serving and self-promoting. So what was in it 
for her. Please join me for our next episode of the Tom Bigby Tales podcast. And remember to like, subscribe, and share. I'm Shannon Evans, and this is the Tom Bigby Tales podcast.